Welcome to Crime, Corruption, and Cocktails, the true crime podcast where we look at cases of corruption and negligence and examine their historical and cultural implications. Today, I'm drinking an Aperol Spritz. What do you have, Del? I am drinking a peach margarita, and on this week's episode, we are concluding our New Jersey-themed cases by looking at the criminal career of the Iceman, Richard Kalinske. Kalinske was a notorious mafia-connected hitman who claimed to be responsible for killing over 100 people. Richard Kalinske was born on April 11, 1955, to Stanley Kalinske and Anna McNully in Jersey City, New Jersey. He was the second of four children. He was raised in an abusive household with both his mother and father routinely beating him, according to Kalinsky. His father was an alcoholic that left the family when Richard was young, only returning drunk to abuse Richard and his wife. His mother, Anna, would beat Richard with broom handles and other household objects. This included times where she would break the broomstick during assaults. Richard recalled an incident during his preteen years when his mother attempted to kill his father, Stanley, with a kitchen knife. Anna's behavior is often attributed to her devout Roman Catholic faith. She believed that stern discipline should be accompanied by a strict religious upbringing. Richard would later describe his mother as a quote-unquote cancer and rejected Catholicism later in life. Richard was not the only convicted criminal in his family. His brother Joseph was convicted in 1970 of raping a 12-year-old girl and murdering her by throwing her and her dog off the top of a five-story building. Kalinsky's criminal career started in the mid-1960s when he began bootlegging copies of Disney films from a Manhattan film lab that he worked at. He then moved into bootleg and pornography when he discovered it was more lucrative. He was arrested for passing a bad check, but was released when he agreed to pay the money back. He was known to lead a burglary ring with Gary Smith, Barbara Deppner, her husband Daniel Deppner, and Percy House. We're going to be looking at the five murders that Kalinsky is confirmed to have committed. The first murder happened on January 30th, 1980. George Maliband had arranged to meet Kalinsky to sell him tapes and was reportedly carrying $27,000 at the time of the meeting. Maliband's body was found on February 5th, 1980 in a 55-gallon drum and was left near a Chemitex chemical plant in Jersey City. Kalinsky admitted to shooting Maliband five times due to their business dealings. The second murder occurred in 1982, with Richard later confirming the date as April 29, 1982. Paul Hoffman was a customer looking to purchase stolen Tagnamate. Tagnamate was a popular drug used to treat peptic ulcers. As a pharmacist, Hoffman allegedly planned to resell this drug at his store. Hoffman believed Kalinsky had tagged me and went to buy it from him with $25,000 in cash. When Hoffman arrived, Kalinsky tried to shoot him, but the gun jammed. He then beat him to death with a tire iron. He once again stuffed the body inside a 55-gallon drum and left Hoffman in Little Ferry. Kalinsky claimed the body disappeared from where he had left it. 
Hoffman's body has never been recovered. During the early 1980s, Kalinsky's gang was being investigated by the police. In December 1982, Percy House was arrested and he agreed to become an informant against Kalinsky. House was placed in protective custody and warrants were issued for two of the gang members, Gary Smith and Daniel Deppner. Kalinsky warned them to lay low and they rented a room at the York Hotel in North Bergen, New Jersey. Smith left the hotel to visit his daughter. Kalinsky feared that, like House, was going to become an informant. The events were described later at trial as follows. Kalinsky fed Smith a hamburger laced with cyanide. This was slow to work, so Daniel Deppner strangled Smith with a lamp cord. Forensic pathologist Michael Badden said that Kalinsky and crew could have gotten away with this murder had he solely relied on the poison, which may have been mistaken for a drug overdose, but the ligature clued the investigator to the fact that it was a murder. Barbara Deppner had not returned with a car to move the body, so it was left in between the mattress and the box spring. Many hotel guests slept on the mattress and complained of the smell, but didn't look under the mattress. On December 27, 1982, the hotel manager finally looked into the complaints and Smith's decomposing body was discovered. Kalinsky moved Daniel Deppner to an apartment in Bergenfield, New Jersey that belonged to Rich Patterson. Patterson was away and between February and May of 1983, Kalinsky killed Deppner. Kalinsky enlisted Patterson's help to dispose of Deppner's body, telling Patterson the victim was a friend in trouble with law enforcement and someone had broken in and killed him over the weekend. He added it was best to dump the body to avoid trouble with the police, then forget about the incident. Deppner's corpse was discovered on May 14, 1983 by a cyclist in a wooded area of West Milford, New Jersey. Medical examiners couldn't definitely determine a cause of death, but noted there were signs of cyanide poisoning. Deppner was also strangled. Investigators guessed that Deppner had already been incapacitated, such as by poison, because the partially eaten corpse had no defensive wounds and healthy adult men are rarely killed by strangulation. Kalinsky's last confirmed murder was that of Louis Masgay. His body was discovered on September 25, 1983, near a town park in Orangetown, New York, with a gunshot wound to the back of the head. Masgay disappeared on July 1, 1981, two years prior. That day, he had met Kalinsky at a New Jersey diner to purchase a large quantity of bank video cassette recorders. Maskey's body was stored in a freezer and Kalinsky did not thaw it before disposing of it. He also wrapped it in plastic garbage bags, which kept it insulated and partially frozen. The Rockland County Medical Examiner found ice crystals inside the body on a warm September day. If the body had been thawed before discovery, the medical examiner stated he probably never would have noticed Kalinsky's trickery. The discovery that Kalinsky froze Maskey's corpse encouraged law enforcement officers to nickname him Iceman. Newspaper reporters sensationalized Kalinsky's frequently used moniker of Iceman in headlines. Eventually, the five unsolved homicides, Hoffman, Smith, Deppner, Maskey, and Maliban, were linked to Kalinsky because he was the last person to see each of them alive. A joint task force of law enforcement officials titled, quote-unquote, Operation Iceman, was created between the New Jersey Attorney General's Office and the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms, dedicated to arresting and convicting Kalinsky. 
The ATF was involved due to Kalinske's firearm sales. ATF Special Agent Dominic Palafron went undercover for 18 months to apprehend Kalinske. Starting in 1985, Kane and Palafron worked with Phil Samaline, a close longtime friend of Kalinske, to get Palafron close to Kalinske. Posing as a mafia-connected criminal named Dominic Provenzano, Palafron purchased a handgun-muffler combination from Kalinsky. In recordings, Kalinsky discussed a corpse he kept in a freezer for two and a half years. He told Palafron he preferred poison, saying, quote, why be messy? You do it nice and calm, end quote. On December 17, 1986, Kalinsky met Palafron to get cyanide for a planned murder, which was to be an attempt on an undercover police officer. After the recorded conversation with Palafron, Kalinsky went for a walk. He tested Palafron's purported cyanide on a stray dog using a hamburger as bait and saw that it was not poison. Suspicious, Kalinsky decided to not go through with the planned murder and went home instead. He was arrested at a roadblock two hours later. His wife was charged with disorderly conduct for interfering with his arrest. Officers discovered a firearm in the vehicle and she was charged with possession of a firearm because she was a passenger in the car. Prosecutors charged Kalinsky with five murder counts and six weapons violations, as well as attempted murder, robbery, and attempted robbery. Kalinsky was held on a $2 million bail bond and made to surrender his passports. Law enforcement officials said Kalinsky had large sums of money in Swiss bank accounts and a reservation on a flight to that country. At his trial, Kalinsky's former associates, including Percy House and Barbara Deppner, gave evidence against him, as did ATF Special Agent Palafron. In March 1988, jurors found Kalinsky guilty of murdering Smith and Deppner but found the deaths were not proven to be by Kalinsky's conduct, meaning he would not face the death penalty. After the trial, Kalinsky pled guilty to killing Maskey and Maliban. Kalinsky was sentenced to an additional two life sentences to be served consecutively. Kalinsky was ineligible for parole until 2046, when he would have been 111 years old. He was incarcerated at Trenton State Prison. During his incarceration, Kalinsky granted interviews to prosecutors, psychiatrists, criminologists, and writers. Several television producers also spoke to Kalinsky about his criminal career, upbringing, and personal life. These talks culminated in three televised documentaries known as the Iceman Tapes, broadcast on HBO in 1992, 2001, and 2003. According to his daughter, Merrick Kalinsky, her mother convinced Richard to do the interviews and she was paid, quote unquote, handsomely for them. In various interviews, Kalinsky claimed to have murdered around 200 people. In 2006, Paul Smith, a member of the task force involved in arresting Kalinsky and later a supervisor of the Organized Crime Division of the New Jersey Attorney General's Office, said, quote, I checked every one of the murders Kalinsky said he committed and not one was true. End quote. He added, quote, authorities throughout the country could not corroborate one case based on the tidbits Kalinsky gave, end quote. 
Kolinsky also alleged he was a mafia contract killer independently working for all of the five families of New York City, as well as the Devolcante family of New Jersey. However, Kolinsky's alleged involvement in mafia hits has been disputed by other authorities. According to Jerry Capici, quote, Philip Carlo claims the Iceman killed Paul Castellano, Carmine Galanti, and Jimmy Hoffa, along with Roy DeMeo and about 200 others. Come on, do you believe that? I don't know anyone who believes that. No one. End quote. In his 2001 HBO interview, Secrets of a Mafia Hitman, Kalinsky said he knew who killed former Teamsters union president Jimmy Hoffa. Kalinsky did not claim any personal involvement in Hoffa's disappearance and presumed murder and did not identify any culprit. However, he later claimed he killed Hoffa. In his account, Kalinsky was part of a four-man kidnap team. They grabbed Hoffa in Detroit. While they were in the car, Kalinsky killed Hoffa by stabbing him with a large hunting knife. He said he drove Hoffa's corpse from Detroit to a New Jersey junkyard. It was placed in a drum, set on fire, and then buried in the junkyard. Later, fearing an accomplice might snitch, the drum was disinterred, placed in the trunk of a car, and compacted into a cube. It was sold as scrap metal along with hundreds of other compacted cars. It was shipped off to Japan to be used in making new cars. Deputy Chief Bob Buccino, who worked on the Kalinsky case, said, quote, They took a body from Detroit where they have one of the biggest lakes in the world and drove it all the way back to New Jersey. Come on, end quote. And he added, quote, We didn't believe a lot of things, he said, end quote. In October 2005, after nearly 18 years in prison, Kalinsky was diagnosed with Kawasaki disease, which is characterized by inflammation of the blood vessels. Although he had asked doctors to make sure they revived him, if he developed cardiopulmonary arrest or risk of heart attack, his then former wife Barbara had signed a do not resuscitate order. A week before his death, the hospital called Barbara to act to rescind the instruction, but she declined. Kalinsky died at age 70 on March 5th, 2006. Jenny, what are your thoughts on the Iceman, Richard Kalinsky? I was not familiar with this story beforehand, so I definitely learned a lot today. It's interesting that he killed in so many different ways. I mean, it seems like he liked cyanide, but strangling people, shooting people, saying he's like stabbed people. Not normal. I don't know if that's normal for a hitman. I know that's, I'm saying that with quotations, hitman, because it, I don't think he was personally, um, which we'll get into more in a second, but thought that was kind of interesting. I watched some of the tapes where he was interviewed. And he's very, very cold when speaking. And at times, it seemed like he was almost smirking when he was talking about killing people. He definitely views killing as just business. I mean, when he was saying like, why be messy? That to me is like straight business talk. And again, he's another killer that had a very horrible, horrible childhood. So we definitely see that pattern. We've talked about many other people on this podcast, many other killers who have had horrible childhoods. So evidence, I would say. What are your thoughts, Del? Yeah, I think this case is one of the things where In a lot of ways, you don't know what to believe because there are so many different stories that are out there. A lot of the details um, that came 
from this case were actually from the FBI looking back and seeing what evidence actually existed. That's why we focus on only five murders, even though he claims to have committed anywhere between 100 to 200 murders. I definitely agree that once again, we have a killer that had a terrible childhood. He's definitely probably one of the worst that we've talked about. He was definitely getting a raw deal from both his mother and his father. But I always wonder why is that translated for some people into trying to do right, trying to be great parents when they have kids. And for others like Kalinsky, it translates into them being awful people. In his case, even if he didn't commit 100 murders, he definitely still is a murderer. In general, someone who doesn't care about the law and following what society's rules are for engaging with other people. Jenny, we talked about this a little bit, but how do you feel about his exaggeration of his murder count and trying to make a connection to infamous cold cases, including the disappearance of Jimmy Hoffa? We see this in a lot of serial killers, and I think a lot do have like narcissistic tendencies and personalities. They love attention and the notoriety it gives them. And we do know that for some people, it can give them privileges in prison as well. And like we said, he or his wife and their family were going to be getting money for appearing in this HBO special. So I feel like that probably played a role too. It seems like it was easily determined that he wasn't part of these murders. So I do find it interesting that he, like, why did he pick these specific ones to say he was part of? And to lie about like 200, I mean, I guess he didn't give details for all 200, but that's a lot. That's not like easily like stories to come up with. And in that interview that I saw, I think it was the 1992 interview. It does kind of seem like an act in some of them. I don't think he was really part of the mafia. I don't think he killed Jimmy Hoffa. I know we do have an episode about Jimmy Hoffa. If you'd like to hear more of our thoughts on that. I think he probably did kill more than five people, but I would not say like upwards of a hundred. What do you think? I definitely agree with you. I always find it weird when you have people that are exaggerating their criminality. I mean, you see it with like Henry Lee Lucas, right? Where they are giving investigators kind of enough to waste time, but they're actually not connected to any of these crimes. I think it's more so a financial thing when it comes to Kalinsky. I think that likely in his mind, he was thinking, well, the juicier I make the details, the more prolific I make myself seem, the more money these producers are going to give me. And they're going to want to keep talking to me as much as possible and wanting to keep talking to his family. I do find it interesting how kind of supportive his wife was with going along with the lies. In a lot of other cases that we've talked about, the family definitely tries their best to either detach themselves 
uh, from the killer or have where they kind of minimize what the killer has done. But in this case, I guess probably because they're profiting off of it, they are building up this kind of mystique and aura about him that he was this big time mobster who for the right price would kill anyone. But I agree with you. I don't think that he was involved with the mafia. I don't think that he killed Jimmy Hoffa. I think he's someone, like you said, that craves attention. And it's one of the things of it doesn't really matter how one gets famous for some people. It just matters to them that some people are saying their name. And even if that's tied to something negative, they really don't care. Richard would often describe himself as a hitman for the mafia. While this claim may be false and likely is, contract killers are a unique subset of serial killers. Contract killing is a form of murder or assassination in which one party hires another party to kill a targeted person or persons. It involves an illegal agreement which includes some form of payment, monetary or otherwise. Contract killing has been associated with organized crime, government conspiracies, dictatorships, and vendettas. Contract killers may exhibit serial killer traits, but are generally not classified as such because of third-party killing objectives and detached financial and emotional incentives. A study by the Australian Institute of Criminology of 162 contract murders and attempted contract murders in Australia between 1989 and 2002 indicated the most common reason for murder for hire was insurance policy payouts. Contract killings generally make up a small percentage of murders. For example, they accounted for about 5% of all murders in Scotland from 1993 to 2002. Before we get into some examples of contract killers, Jenny, do you see a major difference between contract killers and other type of serial killers? There is a major difference. I was going to say at the heart, they are the same because you're killing a person, taking someone's life for a reason, whether it's because someone told you to and paid you, or you're going to gain something like an insurance payout, or like you just don't have to deal with that person anymore, or you're getting some type of thrill from it. So there is that something to gain motive. But like we said, I think that detachment, especially that emotional detachment is a really big difference. It takes a very unique person, I guess I'll say, to be able to do this, to detach emotionally and mentally. And like we were saying with Kalinsky, just see it as a job. I don't know how people are able to do that. So I don't know. I'm glad that it makes up such a short, <laughs> short amount of murders because I guess so many people wouldn't be able to do that and just not care and go about their lives. What do you think? I agree with you. I definitely think that they fit into the wider realm of being a serial killer by definition. And for me, it doesn't really matter whether you're doing it because you're getting some type of psychological benefit or financial benefit. It takes a very unique person, and I mean that in a negative way, to kill someone else. And so whether your motive is something personal to you 
or something personal to someone else and you're following their orders and receiving compensation, you're still showing yourself capable of killing people and killing multiple people. For me, contract killers are even more dangerous in some way because of that detachment, because it doesn't matter who the person is for the right price, they're willing to kill anyone. And that's a psychological mindset that is uh, mind-filled. And like you said, I'm very happy that it is a rare thing. And it seems like most people are not capable of doing that. We're not willing to do it. History is filled with many contract killers who are typically tied to organized crime. We are going to look at three examples. And the first one is Harry Pittsburgh Phil Strauss. He was a prolific contract killer for Murder, Inc. in the 1930s. Murder, Inc. or Murder, Incorporated was an organized crime group active from 1929 to 1941 that acted as the enforcement arm of the National Criminal Syndicate, a closely connected criminal organization that included the Italian-American Mafia, the Jewish mob, and other criminal organizations in New York City and elsewhere. Murder, Inc. killers were paid a regular salary as retainer, as well as an average fee of $1,000 to $5,000 per killing. Their families also received monetary benefits. Strauss reportedly killed over 100 men, with some historians putting the number as high as 500. He used a variety of methods, including shooting, stabbing with ice picks, drowning, live burial, and strangulation. Harry Strauss and his accomplice, Martin Goldstein, were put on trial for the September 4, 1939 strangulation murder of bookmaker Irvin Feinstein, whose body was set on fire and left in a vacant lot. The trial started in September 1940 with Strauss pleading insanity. On September 19, 1940, Strauss and Goldstein were convicted of first-degree murder and a week later sentenced to death in the electric chair. On April 24, 1941, Strauss and Goldstein's convictions were affirmed by New York's Court of Appeals on a 4-3 to three decision. They were executed via electric chair on June 12, 1941. Next is Han Gyro Velasquez Vasquez. Also known by the alias Popeye or JJ, he was a Colombian hitman. He was part of the criminal structure of the Medellin cartel until his surrender to the Colombian authorities in 1992. Within this structure, he claimed to be a lieutenant commanding half of the Sicarios. He confessed to 257 personal killings, the kidnapping of then-candidate for mayor of Bogota, Andre Pastrana Arango, who would later become the president of the republic, the kidnapping of Francisco Santos, who would later become vice president, kidnapping and murder of Colombian politician Carlos Mara Hoyos. Velasquez admitted to arranging over 3,000 killings. He also helped to plan the plane bombing that killed 110 people. Jose Rodrigo Archega Gamboa is who we'll talk about next. Commonly referred to by his alias El Chino Antrax, he was a Mexican drug lord, professional hitman, and a high-ranking member of the Sinaloa cartel. 
a criminal organization based in Sinaloa. He was one of the leaders and the founder of Los Antrax, an armed enforcement group that protected Sinaloa cartel members Ismael Almeo Zambada and his sons. He was arrested on December 30th, 2013 at Amsterdam Airport Schiphol in the Netherlands at the request of the United States, which contacted Interpol to arrest him for charges related to drug trafficking. He was extradited to the U.S. on July 10th, 2014. After being sentenced to house arrest, he was reported missing on May 9th, 2020. He reappeared in Kulakan, Sinaloa on May 15th, 2020, where he was found murdered along with his sister and brother-in-law. Jenny, what are your thoughts on these examples of contract killers? I don't understand why people get into this field, but I mean, I guess once you start, you can't really stop. It's not easy to get out of, I'm assuming. That first guy we're talking about, first off, I didn't know there was a Jewish mob, so that's kind of interesting to me. but. The way he killed people, that variety of methods, which like we said with Kalinsky, live burial, oh my God, I cannot imagine. And you have to be a pretty brutal person to do that. And then JJ arranging over 3,000 killings and then killing over 250 people himself too. That's like a machine. Like, Like we keep saying, it's just business to these people. It's crazy. And then the last person, it's interesting that he was missing and then he was found murdered. And I wonder if they've solved that, if they have any ideas of who could have done that, if it will be solved, because I'm sure it was another hit person and they tend to be pretty clean with these killings, I would say. What do you think? I definitely agree with you. When it comes to Strauss, one of the strange things was He was said to never carry a weapon, and a part of his planning for murders were, like, looking around to see what he could use. But he definitely, I think, did a lot more than that, because you don't just stumble upon a burial site. That's something that you need to plan for and actually prep. And it just goes to show that I don't think it's always strictly financial with uh, contract killers, because if it was, I think that you would likely find a method, stick to it, whatever leaves the least amount of evidence. But for a lot of these people, they take personal pleasure in killing people and getting away with it. When it comes to Velasquez, I was familiar with him because he, his story was portrayed on Narcos, the television show. And it is insane how involved he was. He was someone that worked directly with Pablo Escobar. And so though the numbers seem really, really high, knowing about like, that era of Colombia and the different fights that were going on between the cartel and the police, it's definitely conceivable that he was responsible for arranging all those murders, personally murdering those individuals. And it is confirmed that Pablo Escobar was responsible for the plane bombing. And as Pablo's kind of like right-hand man, he would definitely have been involved in that. The last person was interesting 
because it's one of those things where I always wonder how people are able to go on the run when their picture is known. Um, They're known for being killers. So you would think that they would be captured fairly easily. And he wasn't. They had to get Interpol involved and have a bunch of like extradition uh, requests going through just to get him to the United States to be held responsible under the Kingpin Act for all that to happen and for him just to go missing and then wind up dead less than a week later. It's like, was it someone finally getting back to him? Was it a vengeance thing? Was it a business thing? It's all over the place. And quite frankly, I'm not surprised. A lot of the people that are engaged in organized crime end up with a similar fate to him. Like Percy House, people who agree to cooperate with authorities are often given protection from those they are informing against. Witness protection is security provided to a threatened person, providing testimonial evidence to the justice system, including defendants and other clients, before, during, and after a trial, usually by police. While a witness may only require protection until the conclusion of a trial, Some witnesses are provided with a new identity and may live out the rest of their lives under government protection. Witness protection is usually required in trials against organized crime, where law enforcement sees a risk to witnesses to be intimidated by colleagues of the defendants. It is also used at war crime, espionage, and national security issues trials. The United States Federal Witness Protection Program, WPP, also known as the Witness Security Program, or WITSEC, is a witness protection program administered by the United States Department of Justice. The program is operated by the United States Marshal Service, which is designed to protect threatened witnesses before, during, and after a trial. There are two levels of protection programs that exist which are the state and federal programs in addition to the Emergency Assistance Witness Program. The security, safety, and health of those witnesses and their family members are provided for by these programs when the witnesses have an association with the government. Most witnesses are protected by the U.S. Marshal Service under the Department of Justice, while the protection of incarcerated witnesses is the duty of the Federal Bureau of Prisons. This program is very secretive in order to continue the safety of its participants. The leaking or sharing of information on these participants is taken very seriously. Former decorated federal law enforcement officer John Thomas Ambrose was convicted in 2009 of leaking information about a federal witness in the witness protection program to Chicago outfit hitman Nicholas Calabresi and other members of Chicago organized crime. According to Gerald Schur, who created the federal program, about 95 of its witnesses in the program are quote-unquote criminals. They may be intentional criminals or people who are doing business with criminals. In both criminal and civil matters involving protected witnesses, the U.S. Marshals cooperate fully with local law enforcement and court authorities to bring witnesses to justice or to have them fulfill their legal responsibilities. As stated previously, about 95% of witnesses in WIT 
SEC are already criminals. Therefore, recidivism is very crucial to understanding both perspectives of the criminal and the witness. Fewer than 17% of protected witnesses who have committed crimes are caught committing other crimes. Jenny, what are your thoughts on the Witness Protection Program? And are you surprised that most of the individuals under federal protection are criminals? I don't want to call it glamorous or anything, but it's a lot less, I guess there's like less of a spectacle to it than I thought. I think it's a very necessary and very important program to have. And I was surprised to hear that such a high amount are criminals. I guess because too, when you think of like movies about witness protection, it's never really people that are criminals. So I guess I had a little bit of like a false impression of what is really involved in that. But I guess it does make sense. And it's great to see that recidivism rate so low too. Wouldn't have expected that. What are your thoughts? I agree with you. I definitely think that it's a really important aspect of the criminal justice system. And I think it encourages people to actually come forward because they know that this protection is available to them. When it comes to organized crime, I think one of the biggest things was just getting people to share the information that they had. And the Witness Protection Program ensures that not only are they able to provide the evidence to investigators as they're like building the case, but it's also able to be like legally on the record at the trial. And it's good that they extend that after the trial. I know a lot of times it's a lifelong thing that people are looking over their shoulder if they assist with investigation. So I definitely do think it's necessary to provide lifelong protection to those who have contributed to putting away mafia bosses, terrorists, and all the other individuals that are convicted, witnesses that receive protection from the government. I'm definitely not surprised that most of them are criminals. The way I think about it is that most people that have the know-how and just the evidence to convict someone of a criminal offense is likely someone that worked with them or assisted them in some type of way. So, of course, they're going to be the ones that are providing that evidence. And a lot of times people turn state witnesses or they inform on their accomplices because they're trying to get out of a conviction or reduce their sentence. So, yeah, it makes sense to me. I wonder how the federal government completely justifies it because I'm sure that there are individuals that are not too happy that there are criminals being protected by our Department of Justice, specifically the U.S. Marshal Service. But even if you're a criminal, I think that you should be able to kind of reform. And definitely from that low recidivism rate, it definitely seems that being in witness protection provides enough stability that people don't feel the need to continue whatever criminal behavior they had started with. That wraps up this week's case. Thank you for listening. Let us know in the comments what you think about the Iceman, Richard Kalinske. You can read more about this case and how to support us in the links below. We will be back next week with a brand new episode focused on Elizabeth Holmes
as always, stay safe.